0: When you guys think about Christmas, I'm curious, what do you think about? You know, what sort of things come to your mind? You know, I think it's interesting when you go to stores uh, and you see the decorations that they're selling or Christmas cards and things like that, it seems like everything is always depicting some time in the past. There's always even like a vintage flavor or flair to things that we buy that are decorated for Christmas. Uh, They're always looking back, basically. Um, At Christmas, uh, if you think about it, most people, we want to look back, right? We want to try and escape reality, don't we? I mean, I think even this year especially, there's many people who we've gotten to Christmas We're like, I'm so glad it's Christmas because in a way it feels like a chance for us to escape. I mean, I even started playing Christmas music on November 15th, which is like crazy for me. That's like a big no-no in my house, right? But maybe we do this because we want to look back to like a simpler time in our lives or something like that. I mean, even as adults, we can look at kids and it was so great to have all the kids in here with us again today. Um, I've really missed that. But you look around at kids in our church or maybe kids in your own home and you look at them and you're like, man, your life is just so simple. Right? You don't have the kinds of responsibilities that adults have. And so I've even reflected, um, you know, when I was a kid looking forward to Christmas, my greatest stress was, am I going to open up a Tecmo Super Bowl Nintendo game or something? Or am I going to get the Joe Montana jersey that I've been really wanting or something like that? I mean, that was the only thing that I actually had to seemingly worry about. But I wonder if at a deeper level, when it comes to Christmas, you use it even as an adult, or you at least hope for it to be some kind of escape, right? An escape from today, an escape to the past. Maybe for you, Christmas isn't an escape to the past, but a horrible reminder of the grief that you experience in your present. You know, despite all the fun at Christmas, Christmas can be a very difficult time for for many, many people. You know, so maybe for you, it's you're gathering around that dinner table and there's the empty chair that signifies for you the loss of a loved one, or maybe it's a mental illness as you struggle with depression or maybe anxiety this time of the year. And so, even as Christmas dawns upon you and the depression sets in, it even intensifies the depression because Christmas, you feel this pressure to have fun. And as you feel the pressure to have fun, it's even intensified how sad you feel. Or maybe it's, it's, it's the loneliness this time of the year for you, or, or maybe it's just the difficulty of a family relationship that you've avoided all year, and now the holidays are back, and you know you can't avoid that relationship again. See, for most of us, Christmas is really a mixed bag, isn't it? It's a mixture of joy that's often achieved through escape, or it's a, it's a bag of sadness. But, but is that our only options for today? an escape to the past in order to cultivate some sort of cheap joy, or is it a grief-filled reality of broken promises? See, the Christian story is actually very different. It's very different because, yes, at Christmas, we absolutely look back to the past, don't we? But we don't look back to escape. We look back to cultivate our our hope, don't we? We look back to find the source of our hope, And so here's what I want us to consider this afternoon together, and I want you to seriously think about this, like seriously think about this. What are you hoping in? What are you hoping in? Where's the source of your hope? Like when you walked in here tonight or when you wake up tomorrow and you you go about your, your day and your week, what are you hoping in? In other words, what do you think will save you? And what do you think will make your life finally what it's meant to be? Well, what we're seeing this, this evening here in Isaiah chapter 11 is this. We're seeing that we can have hope in our present, no matter what we're experiencing. We can have hope in our present because our future is bright if Jesus is who you've been waiting for. he's who you've been waiting for. So again, let's, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read this together. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, which is like another term for snake. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. All right, so now thinking about our hope, this is what I want us to see in our passage together tonight. In verses 1 through 5, I want you to answer this question as we're going about it. Is this the Savior you were hoping for? Is this the Savior you were hoping for? And secondly, is this the world you are hoping for? We see that in verses six through 10. So is this the savior you were hoping for as you walked in here tonight? And the last part, is this the world you are hoping for? So let's look, is this the savior you were hoping for? If you're looking at the passage right before Isaiah chapter 11 and chapter 10, it talks about a sudden and swift destruction that's coming upon this violent and gruesome nation called Assyria. Assyria is the world power. It's gonna overpower God's people and Judah, but eventually it is told that in the years ahead, they would be wiped out, and it describes their majesty and downfall as a forest that is majestic and then all of a sudden just cut down so that everything that remains is basically a stump. Earlier in Isaiah chapter 6, the similar image was given to God's people, Israel themselves. It was given that they would be cut down like a stump as well. So the image here is of a field where there was once this great forest, and you've come upon it, and it's just a bunch of stumps. Now, this is not this is not hard for us to imagine as Oregonians, right? I was thinking this week this would be a much more difficult passage to preach in, like Kansas or something like that, where people are like, "What are trees?" You know. But for us, you know, we just look around, and there's trees everywhere. I mean, just yesterday, me and my family, uh, we went and we picked out our Christmas tree, and we cut it down. You know, and we we walked through this huge tree farm, you know, and just nitpicking every little thing about it. And finally, we settled on the tree that we really wanted, right? And we we cut that thing down and we took it home. Could you imagine just all the trees that you see on a daily basis? And all of a sudden tomorrow, you wake up and you go outside and everywhere there was once a tree is a stump. Like everywhere, the foothills of Mount Hood, you got to go get an artificial tree this year if you haven't got your tree already, right? I mean, just everything is a stump, right? That's the picture in our text. It's as if Isaiah is looking across this field that's just devastated with stumps. And in the midst of it, he sees one small shoot, right? One small sign of life growing up from one of those stumps. See that in verse 1, right? Apparently not, lo- not all is lost after all. It seems like there is still life to be found in this forest. And then he explains that this shoot will come forth from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? All right, well, Jesse is the father of Israel's greatest king, King David. All right, that's who he is. So the hearers in this day would have heard that and they're like, oh, we know who Jesse is. We know who Jesse is. They would have known that God promised the kingly line of David that one day he would send a greater king and that king's kingdom would last forever. It will last forever. You could read about that great promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So we see something else, though. We have the shoot that's coming out, but then notice down in verse 10, there's something else that's happening here. Look at verse 10. Here, he's not the shoot of Jesse. This same person is described as the root of Jesse. So we see the shoot of Jesse and the root of Jesse. So think about what this is saying. Think about what this is saying. This one who it's describing here in chapter 11 is the root of Jesse. So he is the one that Jesse comes from, right? Jesse comes from him because he was before Jesse. He's the root. And at the same time, he is the shoot from Jesse. He comes as a descendant from Jesse. I mean, how is this possible, right? How can you come before a person and after a person? How can you come before Jesse and be a descendant of Jesse, Well, it can only be done in the one who we're celebrating and singing about tonight, can it not, right? Jesus, the Son of God, the one who existed before anything else existed, the one who John says is the Word who was made flesh and came and lived among us, the one who is the Alpha, he's the one who's before all things, and the one who would go and enter the world, God himself, take on flesh, God incarnate. Right? The one fully God, fully God, or fully God, fully man, right? Who theologians describe as the, in the hypostatic union, right? Fully God, fully man. Christ, the one who created all things, but also born. The root and the shoot. You guys, this is what we're celebrating this whole month. This is the jaw dropping, breath stealing reality of God incarnate, who's come nearer than you could have ever dared dream. I mean if you just look over like four chapters to Isaiah chapter seven and verse fourteen, we we have it read every year, right? There's this great promise says the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See Advent, the word itself, is just a word that simply means the arrival of a significant person or event. And we could think of nothing, no one, more significant, and no other event more significant than the arrival of God Himself to this earth more than 2,000 years ago. Guys, I mean, there are parts of the Bible that are really hard to believe, not because they are cheap and small, but because they are audacious, because they are glorious. And this is at the top of the list right? This is why C.S. Lewis called the incarnation the grand miracle, right? It's the, it's the miracle of all miracles. I mean, it's, it's hard to fathom, to get your mind around. Incarnate deity? So we sing about. So, these first five verses are describing Jesus, the Savior, the root and the shoot, and His coming, the descendant of this man Jesse. And then verse 2 begins to tell us what this root and shoot man is really like. What does it say in verse 2? The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. So, he will be a Savior King who is intimately connected to God, his Father, because God's Spirit will rest on him. We can almost think in our minds about Matthew's gospel when Jesus comes up out of the waters when he's baptized, and the Spirit, it says, came and rested on him, right, before he began his ministry. Right, so here we have Jesus, fully God, filled with the Spirit, right? If he, he could go around and say things like he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And this enables this king to rule perfectly. And his perfect rule is highlighted for us in verse 2. What does it say? It's highlighted in three ways. One, he will be the perfect political leader because he will have the spirit of wisdom and understanding. These are words, wisdom and understanding, that are used to describe a leader of a country. It's like a king. Two, he will be the perfect military leader because he will defend his people from enemies because he will have the spirit of counsel and might. Counsel and might. These are words given to military leaders as they defend their people. Third, he will be the perfect spiritual leader because he will have the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He will be in intimate relationship with his God, and he will live the way that each one of us are actually called to live, with a right fear of God and not a fear of man. And we are told that he doesn't just fear God, his delight is in the fear of God. In other words, he gets his joy by having God be his God, right? By having God and his glory always before him, he delights in God. All right, so verse 3 then goes on and tells us that this perfect king, he will not be deceived, you can't trick him. There's no sleight of hands. He doesn't even need his eyes, he doesn't even need ears, right? He just knows. He knows everything. He judges perfectly. He will judge righteously and he will bring justice to who? Well, it's all the marginalized people of society. He's going to bring about equity, we see, for the needy and the marginalized where they have been wronged. So people who don't normally then get justice, because their voices aren't heard. They get justice because he knows everything. Can't trick him. And verse 4 tells us that he not only judges rightly, he not only sees and understands rightly, he executes what should be done. He has the power to bring it about. He follows through on his word. So if you feel tonight like you're this unimportant person, Or you would say to someone like me even, like, I feel like I've always been an outcast in my life. Well, this is wonderful news for you, isn't it? See, most of us, to be honest, most of us, we don't feel like we're that important people, do we? We don't always feel like our voices are even heard. They're often drowned out. But this is good news then for us, isn't it? As the perfect Savior, He cares and He acts in the interest of those who are powerless who are completely marginalized and overlooked. I mean, if you were to sum up this Savior King in two words, you could just look at verse 5. What does it say? He is righteous and he is faithful. It's described as his belt. So basically, it's the stuff that holds everything together, right? A belt holds the robe together, everything else together, right? This is, this is who you could describe him as. He's righteous, he is faithful. This is who Jesus is. I don't know about you, but I, I do enjoy... C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, I talk about them from time to time. I've enjoyed over the years just from time to time reading them to my kids. And I love the scene in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe. If you know the story, you know that in Narnia, the great witch rules. And it's said to always be winter and never Christmas, right, when she rules. But the great lion, Aslan, who Lewis wants you to kind of get tipped off that he wants you to think about Jesus when you think about Aslan. Aslan promises to come to Narnia and defeat the witch and bring in spring again. And there's this great prophecy from Mr. Beaver. And this is what he says about Aslan. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in size. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we'll have spring again. I wonder if when we talk about hope tonight, and where's your source of hope, you think of like trying to hold water in your hands, right? Your hope is like that. You're like, this is my source. And it drains quicker than you could really blink, doesn't it? If that's you, and you're like trying to hold the water of hope in your hands, seeing it only drain just a few moments, it probably feels like you to you then that it feels like winter and never Christmas around these parts, doesn't it? But hey, guys, this is what Isaiah 11 is saying to you. Jesus knows your circumstances. He cares for you, and when He came, this is how He lived. And when He comes again, He will right every wrong. He will defeat every enemy. He will defeat Satan, the great witch, right? He will defeat death itself, and he will even conquer your sin once and for all. And when he comes, then sorrows will end. So is this the Savior that you're hoping for? If not, then you just might view Christmas as a time to look back and escape. That's the hope this month. And you will tend to think of your life as always winter and never Christmas, But spring is coming because spring is promised. That's what we see in the second part of this great poem, verses 6 through 10. That's what we're asking, is this the, the world that you're hoping for? These verses are describing the world when Jesus comes during his second advent. So this is an amazing passage. It kind of places us right in the moment in which we stand, that Jesus has come. And now we're looking at what the world's going to be like when he comes again. And what we're seeing is those who were once enemies are now friends. Those who are enemies are now friends. Wolves and lambs, verse 6, they don't hang out. If they do, there's quickly only one left, right? Right? The calf and the lion are together. The cow and the bear lay down. The lion eats straw. I mean, this is a vegan world, you guys, right? Which probably concerns most of us. I mean, this is not the world I was hoping for, right? Right? because you all like a little ox, don't you, right? Well, let's be real. This is remarkable. This is not our world, right? If those images aren't shocking enough, there's even more extreme visuals in verse 8. What does it say? A nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, right? This thought makes us squirm, doesn't it? Just a little bit. I mean, after Christmas is over, you, you might be scrolling your social media and you'll see friends post pictures of the things that their kids got for Christmas. And so, maybe if they got their kids a puppy for Christmas, you'll see that. And you'll go, oh, that's cute, right? And you'll like it or you'll do something, right? You'll, you'll comment or emoji or something, right? But then what if you scroll a little bit further and you see that one of your friends got their toddler, a cobra, right? Right? I mean, what are you going to do? You're not going to say, cute, right? You're going to call the authorities. or so. You're going to do something, right? Because toddlers do not play with cobras, do they? Right? This is supposed to stun you. It's supposed to. Why? Because it's describing for you how profound the transformation of this world will be. In the world that's coming, the cobra is no longer dangerous right? I mean, think about it. The arch enemy of people forever has been snakes, hasn't it? I mean, snakes aren't called man's best friend. If you, call, if you have a snake, number one, I don't know if I trust you, but two, if you call it your best friend, I'm skeptical now even more, okay? But this is not what we call snakes, right? I mean, even back in Genesis chapter 3, when the curse came into the world, it came into the world, why? As a result of the serpent deceiving Adam and Eve, and then sin is now born into this world, and we live in this cursed world world, right? And ever since then, humans and snakes have been enemies, right? But in the new heavens and new earth, they are no longer enemies. Why? Because the curse has finally been reversed. Do you see this vision that God is giving us through Isaiah of what the future will be like? There's no more hostility, perfect reconciliation instead. This is not temporary. This is not, hey, just they had a good moment, they lied down together, right? It was a a nice moment. No, this is lasting, complete reconciliation at every level within all of creation that's hostile towards one another. All things have been made right. So is this the world you are hoping for? Is this the world you are hoping for? I would bet even if you're here and you're an atheist, you would probably say, yeah, this is great. I mean, world peace? This is great, perfect peace. All i got to do is read verses 6 through 8. We all want this, right? Don't we all want this? These always make me think of that famous Piper quote. I've read to you before. I'll keep reading it to you forever. It says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Jesus were not there? If we stop at verse 8, that's kind of what we have, right? And we would all go, that, that sounds the, the world I want. See, most of us indefinitely, the world could stop at verse 8 and say, this is what I was hoping for, And I would say even for a lot of us as Christians, if we were honest, this is kind of the world we hope for. Because most of us, I know I can do this a lot, we can think of God like we think of our waiter at the restaurant. We want to have our good time. We want him to come over and give us the things that we need when we want them. We don't want him to stay very long. We want him to get out of here. As soon as we're done and we have our garbage, we want him to come and take away the things that we don't want to see anymore at our table but we don't want God to come over just like we wouldn't want your waiter to come over and sit down and go, hey, I want to have a relationship with you. Right? That'll get awkward fast, won't it? Because you're like, no, no, no. We just want you to bring us what we want and take away the things that we don't want when we call on you. I'll give you a good tip, right? This is how we often think even of our God. And so this is a good question. This is a good even image for us to wrestle with as we move through these final verses because we still don't even know why. When you read a passage like this, how and why is something so powerful enough to even bring about this kind of dramatic transformation? I mean, what could even do that? Well, verse 9 tells you, it says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, which is kind of a summary verse of what we just read. So here's why the world is this way. What does it say? For or because, right? The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I mean, we we were just staring at a stump-filled forest, right? And now we're basically standing at a sea where as far as your eye can see is water, Think about that. This is the great promise. Finally, one day, the knowledge and beauty of God will fill the earth. Do you see this world is broken? Why? Because the knowledge of the Lord does not fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the implication. But well, what does this mean? It means that the salvation that we are looking for it means that the solution to our problems. It means that the bedrock of our hope is in having an intimate, unhindered, redeemed relationship with the God who made you and His world. Do you see how this great hope and salvation is actually brought about? It's through Jesus, right? The shoot and the root. It's through God incarnate coming. Right. That's what we see in verse ten. Right. The root. What's He doing? In that day, what day? The day that the knowledge of the Lord is covering the earth. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So here we see Jesus, this root of Jesse, standing as this banner, right? This flag that's held out to the world at his first coming. Jesus was lifted up as a banner, He was lifted up on a cross, a banner that looked like failure, a banner that looked like scandal, but instead he was lifted up as an invitation of grace for all nations, no matter who you are, no matter how important you feel or how unimportant you feel, no matter how successful you feel, or no matter how much of a failure you feel like you are right? That's the banner that Christ has flown and is flying and one day will be flown for all people, right? That gives us hope today. It's Jesus held up as this great unifying banner. Again, it's a banner for all the nations, not just for one group of people, not just for one nation, but all nations, all peoples. Even here, nations that are normally, what? At odds with each other, in conflict with one another, are all running to the banner, they're all running to the one who's lifted up. This rally of Jesus, he's lifted up as a banner that we all find, all of humanity will find their unity under. Guys, this is a new world. Is this the world you were hoping for? It's the world we are headed towards, right? Where the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea, meaning everyone. 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 We'll have an intimate relationship with God. That's what this knowledge means, right? I mean, we say this all the time to each other. We say, hey, do you know so-and-so? And And you go, oh yeah, I know so-and-so. But a lot of the time you mean, I know of so-and-so, right? I mean, that's kind of what we mean often when we we answer that. But, But if you were to come up to me and say, hey, do you know Dave Howith, right? Dave Howith is my father. I would say, I know Dave Howith. And I'm not saying to you, I know of Dave Howith. I'm saying, I know Dave Howith. That's my dad. Like, I have an intimate, like my whole life, relationship with my dad. That's my dad. I I would be saying to you, I have a knowledge of my dad. That's a father-son relationship. That's what this is talking about. This is not saying the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth, and everyone will be able to go, I know of God. I've heard about him. They're like, no, I know God. I know Him. That's what this is saying. This is the future. Later in Isaiah, chapter 25, it talks about this new world, and it says this, on this mountain, which is the same language we have in verse 9, the Lord of hosts will swallow up the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God There's a new world coming. No more sickness. No more cancer. Meaning, no need for hospitals. You won't go to the hospital in the new heavens and new earth. So, if you're a nurse or a doctor, you got to get a new job, right? Sorry. I'm sure every job is well paying. There'll be no more death, no more mourning. Funeral directors will be out of business, right? No more need for counselors, right? No more depression, no more anxiety, no more relational conflict, right? No more ugly pride. Now, I know many of you have a lot to be sad about this Christmas. For you, maybe life is miserable, and some of you maybe are, like I said, grieved, by a loved one who's passed away, and so this is a time of the year where you feel that more acutely. Maybe, yeah, like I've said, others of you are struggling with depression or anxiety or something like that, or you're supporting those who struggle. God is saying to you, lift up your eyes. Above the here and now, I have an amazing world that's coming. Think of that marvelous world that God is going to bring you into, Is this the world that you were hoping for? Is this the Savior that you were hoping for? If it is, then you have a hope this Christmas that is a source of a well that does not run dry. Not because you are escaping to the past and trying to live in some nostalgic reality, but because you know what's happened in the past. And you know what's coming. I thought I would end by just telling you, once again, this story... um, uh, the story behind the great Christmas song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. I don't know if you guys know this story, but it was written by a man named Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. That's quite a name. He lived in Massachusetts in the 1800s. And this is a man who knew what grief was. He had six children. His two oldest were boys. His four youngest were girls. And one of those girls died as an infant. I mean, that's like the worst kind of grief right there. His wife, Fanny Elizabeth Appleton, another great name. What happened to our naming, right? One day she had her dress tragically catch fire while Henry was napping. And he woke up to that and tried to put out the fire, but it was just too late. She died the next day. And he was so severely burned that he was kind of mangled. And for the rest of his life, and kind of disfigured in some ways. He couldn't even go to his wife's funeral the next day because he was so sick. And then one day, his son, oldest son Charlie, at the age of 18, he went off to join the Union Army in the Civil War in Washington, D.C. And uh, one day on December 1st, as he was eating dinner all alone in his house, a telegram arrived saying your son was shot and the bullet nicked his spine and he's most likely paralyzed. All that's going on. There's a civil war. He said at one point he was worried that he'd be sent to an asylum because his grief was so bad. But Friday, December 25th, he sat down and he wrote a poem and it's now a song i heard the bells on christmas christmas day he was seeking to capture the grief and the turmoil that he felt in his heart as he looked around the world and it's all this war and all this grief that just you know followed him all of his life and as he's sitting there to write down no write this poem he hears the church bells from cambridge ringing And he can hear the choir singing that Luke 2, you know, carol where the angels belt out peace on earth, goodwill to men. And he's kind of thinking like, what is this, right? Is this sort of a mockery of the truth? And so he he writes this poem, verse 1, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Later on, he writes another stanza. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Then the last stanza. Then peel the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Do do you have the kind of hope that Henry has? I mean, do you drink from that source? Or is the hope you walked in here tonight sort of like holding water in your hands? It's, It's the Shawshank kind of hope, right, that Dan talked about. Or is your hope drawing from the source as you look back, not to escape in nostalgia, but you see God himself has taken on flesh and this is who he's like? And you drink from that well of hope this Christmas and you look ahead and you go, this is the world that's coming? The banner is lifted up, you guys. Jesus on the cross. And one day all nations will run to him. So let's stand and let's go into a time of response as we sing, as we get ready to take the supper, where we remember that great reality. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have this Christmas that we read here in these pages. It's really hard, I think, so many days. I mean, I don't have a life like Henry, Lord, but I, I can't imagine what it's like to endure such suffering and to read these words and to think they're true. So God, would you give us faith to believe and to place our hope tonight in your son, Jesus. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen.